rest of you can turn to Psalm 119. We'll be focusing on the Mem stanza. We've been here for a few weeks. That is verses 97 through 104. And our focus today will be on verse 101. Psalm 119, verse 101. The verse reads like this, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. In Charles Spurgeon's commentary on this verse, he said this, There is no treasuring up the holy word unless there is a casting out of all unholiness. If we keep the good word, we must let go of the evil. I think this is what the author had in mind. The author of Psalm 119 was not interested in the word of God because it spiked his intellectual interests. The author of Psalm 119 cared mostly about applying the practical wisdom found herein. This author was concerned how it affected his daily behavior, his conduct. And the Word of God did this very thing. As we've learned throughout the reading and studying of this particular psalm, the Word of God affected him at the deepest level of his soul and it overflowed into his daily practice. This is what growing in godliness really is all about, isn't it? It's having the Word of God affect us in such a way that it changes how we think, how we live. That's what I desire, at least, as we study doctrine and theology here at Sun Valley Church, as you sit through sermon after sermon. My hope, goal, and prayer is that the Word of God actually finds a resting place in your soul that will affect how you think and live, not just so you can win Bible trivia games if you play such things. This is my prayer. Charles Bridges, another uh, man long past, said this, the professor, that is the one who claims Christ, is afraid of hell, the child of God of sin. The one refrains from the outward act, the other seeks to be crucified to the love of sin. This is what I want to emphasize today. I want you to examine your heart today as we look deeply into this word. Verse 101 makes clear that the only way to avoid evil is to obey the word, and the only way to obey the word is to avoid evil. The two go hand in hand. Sin and the word are incompatible with each other. As John Bunyan famously said, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. A confirmation of an authentic faith is that the Christian, the authentic Christian, will throw out this love of sin that we battle with, will daily battle this, try to get rid of it, and on the other hand, love God with all of his heart do everything he can to get rid of sin and the source of it, and then do everything he can to, to nurture this love for God. This is confirmation of an authentic faith. We know that this is a confirming thing for a real authentic faith because the natural bent of our lives is what? What do you and I naturally do? We naturally drift sinward, right? None of us naturally drifts Godward. But if in fact we can put away sin, we can't even put away the love of sin and embrace a, a true and deep love of God is evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I think we all can benefit from that. Paul in Romans 12, 9 said, let love be genuine. 
And here is genuine love, he says. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So do you genuinely love God? If so, you will abhor what is evil and you'll hold fast to it. You'll love what is good. This is such a, an important part of the Christian life. My question for you this morning is, is your love of God genuine? If so, then you'll love him and hate sin. So Christian friend, this morning as we begin to think more deeply about this word and about our own lives, how determined is your fight against sin? Is it determined? Or have you sensed kind of a weakening of your resolve against it and maybe even a decline in your delight of spiritual things? And I think you know why this happens. Any Christian who's been walking with Christ for any length of time knows that when their interest in spiritual thing wanes and their, their commitment to fighting sin wanes, it's because of one thing, sin, <laughs> right? This is why we fight. And this, by the way, is my prayer for you today. I'm taking my prayer for you today from Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Isn't that what the Christian wants? Isn't that what you want? To be rid of anything that might separate a loving relationship, an intimate relationship between you and your God and find yourself on the everlasting way. Isn't that what we want, Christian? I know it is. I know it is for you. So today's verse helps us walk this everlasting way, helps us consider the depths of our soul, looking inward as God would have us look. So let's take a look at this verse and, and unpack it and piece by piece uh, see how it, it pierces our soul. Verse 101, the first line says, I hold back my feet from every evil way. I'm calling this a holy practice. A holy practice. In the psalmist's day, the feet were the primary means of getting around and getting into trouble. The feet made both possible. In order to get from here to there, you used your feet. And there may be a dangerous place, spiritually speaking. You remember the teacher in Proverbs warned her, his son to steer clear of the house of a prostitute. He said, don't walk near her house. Stay far away from her house, my son. Keep your feet from walking down that road, was his point. In our day, we can get into trouble without even leaving home, can't we? The yellow pages, the ads used to read, let your fingers do the walking through the yellow pages. I don't even know if there are yellow pages anymore. But that was the mantra. Let your fingers do the walking through the yellow pages. These days, we can follow the lusts of our hearts sitting in front of a TV or a computer, letting our fingers walk through the internet or on the remote, literally. And I think this makes our current circumstances in our day more dangerous than ever. The feet of the psalmist in verse 101 is also a metaphor for the affections of the heart. Where are your affections this morning? Our affections can be drawn away by what we see on TV or the internet. The distracting things enter through the eye gate and the ear gate all the time. 
Notice that the author doesn't just hold back his feet from evil in the first line, but he holds it from every evil way. So there is a way, and it could end up in evil things. And a lot of times, the way in which we walk, the way we find ourselves in, isn't bad. It can be something even good. But somehow or another, it ends up hurting us spiritually. There are paths that are not evil, but because of our propensity to sin, end up in evil places. So if you want to obey the word of God, you need to do everything you can to stay away from any path that might lead you away from God, or at least stay vigilant, paying attention to any tricks that Satan might try to pull on you. Well, what are some paths to give you some things to think on that might potentially lead you in evil ways? Let me give you some things here. Taking a job, joining a club, or having a hobby that would restrict your participation in the local church. That is an evil way. Now, taking a job, having a hobby, aren't evil ways, are they? No, of course not. But if they pull you away from the fellowship of the church, that becomes an evil way. We need to be vigilant, paying attention to these kind of things. Another, making financial decisions that would restrict your ability to give obediently. It's not wrong to buy things. Of course it's not. We all need them. But making such financial decisions that would put you in a restricted place is another conversation. Another might be something that leads you down a path of evil is something as simple as owning a TV service. Obviously, owning a TV service isn't wrong, is it? Of course not. Most of you have them. The problem comes when you fit into the average of American TV watching, which I discovered last week was four hours a day watching TV. I think we would all agree that's excessive. And yet, if the averages hold true, what does that say about us? These are all ways that are not sinful in and of themselves, but can lead to unholy things. We need to be vigilant. We need to have holy practice. The next half of the verse says this, in order to keep your word, I avoid evil ways so that I can keep your word. This is my second point, a holy motive. Why does the author keep himself from unholy ways? So that he can find himself in the word and obeying it. That's why. What a great motive that is. If you really do love the law, as we looked at last week in verse 97, oh, how I love your law. You remember that? If that is, in fact, a description of your love for the word of God, you will do everything you can to obey it. If there is a genuine love for God, there will be a genuine desire to obey and please him. Now, I want to mention three things that are related to this holy motive. And the first is this. Both lines of this verse are required if, in fact, we're going to find ourselves in a good place spiritually. Both lines are required. The Christian must do both. He must keep his distance from sin, and he must carefully keep God's word. Those are two different things, but both of them are required. There's a negative and a positive in this equation. In horsemanship language, we need a bridle and a spur. The bridle to keep us from going places we want to go, our feet want to go, and the spur to get us doing things that we ought to be doing. 
So as you grow in Christ, you learn the importance of practicing both of these things. And this, by the way, pops up all over Scripture. Here's one place, Psalm 34, 14. Turn away from evil and do good. So turning away from evil isn't the good you're supposed to be doing. That is something you should, you, should, you ought to do, turn away from evil. But there's more. Second half of the equation, do good. Two different things, both required. Some settle for just resisting evil, and they don't complete the equation. They don't pursue God at a significant level. And, of course, where does this lead? When we just reject evil way, reject evil, I don't do that, I don't do this, I don't do that. Where does that lead? Legalism. You'll never find yourself in some overt, vile sin, but your relationship with God will be next to nothing. You won't have any ravaged heart with the love of God at all. You'll just be known as a certain person who's straight-laced and doesn't do anything. But we want genuine love. Uh, is anybody here interested in a mediocre Christian life? No, I hope not. But that's what happens when you just complete half the equation. If you're ever going to successfully avoid evil, you must do good. We must obey. The Puritans talked a lot about this. Um, John Owen, for example, in his book, Mortification of Sin, said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You choose. You must be killing sin or it will be killing you. Um, the way to kill sin is to feed obedience. And the way to increase obedience is to kill sin. That's what this verse is saying. Both are necessary. Peter was aware of this, uh, especially Peter. 1 Peter 2.24, he said, He himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Two sides of the same coin. Dying to sin, eliminating evil, and then what? Living to righteousness. That's the other half of the equation. So the more you feed the love of obedience, the weaker your desire for sin becomes. So which are you feeding more? Your love for God or your love for sin? Whichever one you feed more, the stronger it will be. The affection to one will awaken and increase the hatred of the other. Secondly, not only must we have both of these in the equation, we must do both with the whole self. Not just half-hearted, but the whole self must be involved. It's not good enough just to avoid evil. We must hate evil. Neither is it good enough just to do good. We must do it with passion. We must engage the heart. We can't be satisfied with just the avoidance of sin, but we must kill the love of it. If you expect victory, avoiding sin and hating it are two different things. And it's the same, of course, on the other side of the coin. We must not just do good, but we must love doing good. The thing that's going to motivate us, Christian, is the fact that we have an all-knowing, all-wise, all-seeing, omniscient God. No one truly believes that they can fool God, right? But it's amazing how we try to. He sees the heart of everything we do. He knows if we're just fulfilling duty. 
He knows if our heart is truly engaged. If you haven't been convinced yet in the Christian life of the importance, the need of hating sin, let me review a few things for you. <clears throat> First of all, sin corrupts everything it touches. Have you noticed that yet in the Christian life? Sin corrupts everything it touches. Next, it is the cause of every divorce that has ever happened. Sin. There are no holy divorces, in spite of what your uncle says. It is the reason we have financial difficulties. It is the basis of every addiction. I'm talking about sin here. It is what separates us from God relationally. If there is a rift or a distance between you and God and you sense it, there's only one reason. He didn't move. It's like the old farmer and his wife. You know, when they were first married, man, she was right next to him in that old Ford, 72 Ford, with that, that long seat that was in those things. No bucket seats back then. And she was sitting right there next to him all the time. Here comes their 15th anniversary, and she's not there anymore. And she says, honey, to her farmer husband, I really miss sitting next to you in the truck. And he looks at her and says, I have never moved. Who's moving in the, the, the equation here? It's not God. He remains faithful. It is his nature. We're the ones who drift. Another reason to hate sin. It pulls us away from a loving relationship with our Father. And to top them off, it's the reason Jesus suffered and died. Friends, pray for a hatred for sin. If you have a hatred for sin, you'll be a long ways down the road to killing it. Next, I want you to look at the order in this verse of these two sides of the same coin. I want you to notice the order which comes first. First line in Psalm 101 says, I hold back my feet from every evil, every evil way. The second line says, in order to keep your word. I think the order is important. These orders tell us something about the Christian life. Our first step must be to keep from evil. Then obedience, I believe, follows. And it seems that this is supported by the Apostle Paul's teaching to the Ephesians and the Colossians. In Ephesians 4, he says, put off the old, then put on the new. In Colossians 3, he says, put off the old, then put on the new. The author of Psalm 119 says, put off the old, then put on the new. This does not mean that you have to clean up your act before you come to Jesus. I'm speaking to, the author of Psalm 119 is speaking to, Apostle Paul is speaking to those who already have come to Christ, those who already have committed themselves to him, those who are following Christ and want to be useful in his kingdom. Those are the people who are in view here. Christians who desire to be free from sin and useful to God will put off the old and then put on the new. Finally, I want to know, you to notice the next thing as we try to do those important steps. And that is the deception of big versus small sins. And I think this hits every one of us. No one in this room is exempt from this battle. 
trying to create a distinction between big sins and little sins is, is the bane of the Christian life. The Christian must actively fight every sinful, sinful tendency. Listen to what Paul told his young uh, disciple Titus in 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. And what's this gospel do? It, trains, it saves us, but then it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. present age. This is what the grace of God does to people and for people. It affects our hearts and our minds. We desire to rid ourselves of all sin. One of Satan's best tricks against the child of God is to try to wedge his way into our lives by finding a resting spot for just a little sin. And once he's established that beachhead, from there he launches more significant attacks. Have you experienced that, Christian friend? A little bit here, and then before you know it, you're upside down. How does that happen? Well, we may try to fool ourselves by thinking that we're okay because we're free from the notorious sins and have only a couple small sins that really don't affect anybody, so I can manage those. It's like the Pharisee, remember, in Luke 18, all proud about how holy he was, standing up in public even, and praying, thanking God that he's not like all these lousy people around him, especially this tax collector. Remember that prayer? What was Jesus' point in sharing that story? Was it that the, the, the street was full of sinners? No, it was to point out the fact that the people who think they're the holiest have sins that are just as damning. People like you and me who think that we've got it together because we don't have these famous notorious sins. I've only got a little bit of impatience to deal with. I'm certainly better than those people. This is serious stuff, friends. We don't want to play that game let me ask you a question about comparing sins. Is it a crime to counterfeit a $100 bill? Yes. In case you don't know, it is a crime. <laughs> it's a felony, in fact. Is it a crime to counterfeit $10 bills? Yes. How about $1 bills? Is judge going to say, oh, it's just a couple tens and a lot of ones? No. He doesn't care. How many zeros are on that piece of paper? He cares that you counterfeited a bill. They're all the same. And the judge of the universe is the same. He doesn't care if you have just a little bit of impatience, maybe a little bit of greed and envy over here, as long as it's not that $100 fornication one. No. That's not the way God works or the way sin works. We're deceived if we think there's acceptable sins in the church even. I think we need to learn to battle them with all of our heart. In Sun Valley Church, every week we give you an opportunity to confess your sins. Uh, and this is a time to confess all sins, whether notorious or invisible. The reason we do that is not to beat you down, not to make you feel less than everybody else in the room. It's because these sins, all of them, big and small, separate you from a loving father. And they keep that relationship in such a state that you don't grow in joy. You don't experience his love at the depths you should. And so we say, please, come. 
with those dinky little sins and confess them so that you can experience the joy God intends for you today. We need to be very wary when we're tempted by acceptable sins. These are the sins that are so common in our culture, even in Christian culture, that we've stopped even blinking at them. Things like impatience, bitterness, envy, greed. You know, these are the sins that the whole world does. And, and Paul in Ephesians 2 says, this is the place we came from, the course of the world. All this kind of sin, including these small ones. We're floating downstream with everybody else, and it feels comfortable because everybody else is with us. You're saying, Pastor John, sounds like you're a little bit unbalanced here, a little paranoid. Uh, let me explain to you my paranoia with these things. Uh, the alarm that I'm trying to ring in front of you. I am concerned about sins of all kind because any sin weakens our spiritual graces. Any sin will weaken your spiritual graces. And what are the spiritual graces I'm talking about? There are things that keep us growing spiritually, like faith, hope, love, godly fear, these things that were implanted in us by the Holy Spirit at the moment of regeneration. These graces are what God intends, us to, intends to use to help us become sanctified, godly, holy people living unto him and when faith, hope, and love weaken because of sin of, of any size, we tend to drift away from our determination to be holy. The, these graces are the health of our relationship with God. And when they weaken, we become vulnerable to the attacks and tricks of Satan. And as a pastor, I don't want to see where that leads in your life, nor where it begins for that matter. When your love wanes, you will lose your diligence and seriousness about godliness, about your interest in following God wholeheartedly, and it all begins with what we would consider small things, small sins. You remember Jesus' letter to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3? You remember those words? Um, they demonstrate how this works, what I'm talking about. They began strong. They began pleasing God. They began experiencing his love and joy and mercy and, and loving fellowship in the saints. Jesus himself comes along and says, wait a minute, churches, you used to love me more. But it's only a little bit of a drop, Jesus. You used to love me more. Jesus said that their weakened resolve turned into apathy and godlessness. Every victory of the flesh, that is when your lusts win, no matter how small that victory is, will dampen, dampen your spiritual strength and your spiritual resolve. On the other hand, every spiritual victory, victory in the spirit that we heard read from Galatians 5 a little bit ago, no matter how small that victory is, will strengthen you against sin, will strengthen your relationship with God, which means it makes it very worthwhile to fight small battles in the Christian life. No sin is too small to get really aggressive with. 
So that's the first reason I'm in a state of pastoral paranoia. It weakens our spiritual graces. Secondly, it diminishes these small sins, diminish our joy. And I'd rather have a church full of joyful people than the other option. I'd rather not pastor people who just hate being here and really don't want to love their wives or respect their husbands or train their children or be in the fellowship of the saints because I'm just not happy to be here. I'd rather pastor a church who longs to be with Christ and his people, who loves pursuing holiness and godliness. Sin diminishes our joy. And for that matter, it weakens our peace and comfort. Psalm 119.32 that we looked at quite a while ago says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. You remember what we talked about in that verse? How does that enlarged heart happen? It happens at regeneration. You're born with a small, hardened heart, a heart of stone, the Bible tells us. But when God grants you mercy and grace, he takes that small, stone-like heart and replaces it with a heart of flesh. And he spends the rest of your converted life enlarging that heart for him and his service. And and the love of the saints. And the Holy Spirit does this through means. He helps you grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He builds up your joy and your peace and your comfort, peace with God, knowing that your sins are forgiven. What joy does that bring? Being reconciled with your Creator, comfort in your heart, knowing that He loves us and watches over us, and there's no sin that we can commit that will separate us from the love of God in Christ. These things, friends, enlarge our heart. And then you remember when Adam sinned, what was his emotion after he and Eve sinned? This man and woman who had walked with God faithfully for who knows how long, maybe years, all of a sudden become afraid of a loving God. Remember? We were afraid. And like, you're afraid. Why? What makes you afraid? Oh, sin. That's what sin does. It, it, it creates fear instead of joy. One small bite is all it was, God. Come on. And then King David lost all his comfort, all of his joy. Psalm 51.8, he pleads with God let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. In verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Come on, God, after all, it was a stroll on his own porch. How is that such a bad thing? He was out getting fresh air. It was stuffy in the palace. All this comes from drifting into small, insignificant sins. This is why what we must maintain a healthy paranoia of sin. We must be vigilant and standing watch over our soul, not allowing the least crack in the wall to appear. Let me just wrap this up this morning by making a few 
points of application by way of question. And just so you know how I think through my preaching and how I uh, come to decide what I want to say and emphasize the questions I want to ask, uh, all week long, last week and every week before I, I preach, I pray that the Holy Spirit would confront the sin in my life, that I examine my own soul before I get up here and tell you to examine yours. This happens every week with me, and I can't remember the last time that I wasn't convicted of sin. So it gives you a perspective here on how this is coming out of my mouth so freely. I've walked down these thoughts here in the last 72 hours, right? I've struggled through my own experience in struggling with sin and trying to justify small things. And so I can say up here, this is about us, not about you. Okay, does that make sense? It's we are the ones in focus here, including me. I think it's important that you hear that from me. But let me ask these application questions. Do you check your sins, friends? Do you check them? Or do you just let them run? It's the breakaway train. I'm not going to check this. Do you actively battle your thought life, gossip, pride, envy? Do you spend time examining sins of omission as well as commission? Sins of omission are things that you ought to do that you don't. Do you think about those at all? We repeat that particular um, confession on a regular basis here at Sun Valley, confessing the sins that we've committed and the ones that we've omitted. So have you thought about your service here? Have you prayed about that? How about your giving, your loving, your general participation, sins of omission? Do you check those things? Where do you say, oh, it's, just, it's just an omission. At least it's not actual committing something. Actually, it is in God's view. Unless we hold back our feet from evil, we will struggle, struggle greatly to obey his word, to relate to our Savior, to be in fellowship with each other and with him. And, of course, this leads to lukewarm relationship with God at best. Secondly, is your battle with sin sincere? And what I mean by that is, are you battling sin at every level of your life, or are you just concerned with those sins that might cast you in a poor light to those who know you? You only check those things that if you got caught would be embarrassing. Or do you go all the way to the secret places of your soul and actually deal with the thing that's keeping you from a joyful relationship with God, your Savior. Being concerned only with sins that make you look bad and not the secret sins that you know exist is a dangerous pattern to set. Not just because of where it might lead, but how it affects you right now. The Apostle Paul said to the Ephesians about this issue, not by way of eye service, in other words, doing things that please other people's eyes, people pleasers, but as bondservants as Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. 
Are you sincere in your battle with sin? God knows exactly what sins are in your life, whether public or private. Each of them has an alienating effect on your relationship with him. He's never fooled by pretenses. And this is just a pastoral plea to you. Please don't tell yourself that no one is perfect. Please don't tell yourself that uh, God is patient. He'll forgive. Please don't tell yourself that the great saints have all done far worse than this. Those things are all true and is exactly what Satan uses to keep you bound in chains and ineffective and joyless. So on top of all those sins that you're allowing in your life, don't add this one, self-deception. So have you labored over your sins sincerely? Have you prayed that God would change your heart? Have you pleaded with him to take your sinful desires away and give you strength to resist and actually hate sin? Pray that if you haven't. Have you called upon the support from your fellow soldiers that are in this room that are gifts from God to you for this very battle? Have you called upon them? Have you called in support? We all face the same temptations. We all struggle with the same weaknesses and sin. So call in the support of fellow soldiers who know exactly what you're going through. Apply these things to your battle. And then finally, do you love what God loves and hates what God hates? Psalm 97.10, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of the saints and he delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Oh, you who love the Lord, do you hate evil? Your love for God will move you to a love what he loves, which is his word and his people. Um, in your struggle with sin, do you find yourself in his word and with his people? There's the victory. That's where it is. If I could give you a secret, there it is. Love what God loves. He loves his word. He loves his people. You spend time there, you'll have victory. James 4, 7 says, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's looking for people who are separate from the pack, looking for people who are vulnerable and weak, and he takes them down. Animals know how to do this. Satan's good at it too. So do you need someone to pray for you? Call them. Ask them to pray for you. Maybe you need that this morning. There will be elders and pastors and small group leaders scattered around the room this morning. Find one and ask them to pray over you this morning for this very thing. What better place to pray for your struggle with sin than in a church building? Ask someone to come alongside you and pray this morning. So don't leave the room self-confident, deceived in your strength. that You can make it, make it out. You'll be fine. No. God has a system. And the system includes time in his word and time with his people. So come get someone to pray over you this morning. To close, I'm going to 
read a prayer from Charles Bridges' commentary on Psalm 119, verse 101. This says everything I want to say in my closing prayer. So I'm just going to read it. It's going to be on the overhead so you can keep your eyes open uh, and not get in trouble. So keep your eyes open and read with me, or read as I read this closing prayer. Blessed Lord, you know that we desire to keep your word. Prepare our hearts to receive and to retain it. May we so abide in Christ that we may receive the sanctifying help of his spirit for every moment's need. And while we rejoice in him as our Savior, may we become daily more sensible of every deviation from the straight path. May our eyes guide our feet, looking to Jesus. May we have light and grace. And may daily grace be given to refrain our feet from every evil way, that we may keep your word. Amen.